Thank you for listening to the What Origin podcast. On this episode, I'm talking to Mitch Altman. He's a hacker, creator, and community leader, and he's taught thousands of people soldering. I now have a video version up, so if you'd like to check it out, you can go to our YouTube channel. Just search for What Origin, and you'll see our videos. And also, you can engage with the community at facebook.com slash whatorigin. So I am here with uh, Mitch Altman, a maker. He loves soldering and building communities. And we're going to talk about, well, how to make life awesome. I guess the, the approach of, uh, of living and doing what you want. So why don't you just tell me a little bit about what you've been doing recently? What are you, what are you excited about now? If anything, now, with this quarantine. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, living under a pandemic is uh, pretty shitty for everybody. But, uh, um, but I've actually been doing really well with it. Um, um, I feel really lucky. I have a, a nice apartment with a friend in Berlin. And I have plenty of food and enough money to keep paying rent and buying food. And I have friends and, um, yeah, and a lot of support and um, people that I can feel good supporting in my life here. So, yeah, life's been really good. You know, it's, uh, the pandemic um, <clears throat> changes our lives, but uh, it's more challenging for extroverted people. And I'm an introverted geek and most of my friends are introverted geeks. And for us, it hasn't changed a whole lot of the major parts of our lives because we're home a lot working on projects quite often. Um, but yeah, it certainly does have its impact. Um, and um, but like I said, I, I feel really lucky to have the life that I have and that gives me time and energy to help other people around me, which feels good too. So um, yeah, um, you know, it's kind of this, this time in my life this last year or so, uh, pretty much everything that I have been doing um, has come to its natural end. Um, and, you know, they're still ongoing, but it's not like I have to put much energy into the projects that I have been doing. And I don't really know what is next for me, but, um, um, you know, if there's ever a good time to have a pandemic, it's a time when um, what you have been doing has been finishing and you're looking forward to whatever's next. And I have plenty of time be exploring. And I think what's next for me is actually writing books, which I've never had enough time to do before because I've been traveling almost all the time up until I arrived in Berlin at the end of February. And um, yeah, and I love it here. And um, it's a really wonderful city. It's still affordable for people to move to without a plan. And so people have time and people are doing all sorts of interesting things. And um, it's really cool to go to places and see what people are up to and help if I can as well. So, um, yeah, and I've um, <clears throat> uh, been in Berlin without traveling since February 29th, and that's the longest I have not traveled in my entire life. Uh, <laughs> travel really isn't a thing right now. Because even when I was a teeny little infant and baby and whatever, my parents would at least go from Chicago where we live to Wisconsin just for a break and take me along and my brothers. So um, yeah, but I'd, it's, it's funny because I don't miss travel. Although if travel opportunity came along and travel were a thing again, I'd be happy to do that and make use of whatever opportunities or wherever I end up and like I have been doing for the last uh, like 18 years. Yeah, not everybody so, yeah. knows that Berlin is kind of this um, creative and artistic hub and sort of place. I mean, some people know, but not 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 everybody knows that, right? They so so Berlin has kind of blossomed, I guess, over the last twenty years or so. Maybe it's been longer, where a lot of people there are just really creative and art studios and things are happening, kind of like maybe it was in. San Francisco 20 years ago or, or some other places. So is it, is it just, you're just surrounded by cool kind of creative people there or what, what is, I mean, like we said, it's still, I want to focus too much on the, the current situation, but I'm curious about what Berlin is, is like, how is it different than um, the Bay area where we met? Yeah. Well, you know, the Bay area for 150 years, 
San Francisco in particular was a place where weirdos of the world, uh, certainly weirdos of the United States and many people in the world collected. Um, people who were leaving much of their old lives behind them and uh, people didn't really need a plan. They were just looking for adventure um, or you know, initially in the gold rush, they were looking for adventure and perhaps fortune. Um, not all those people were people I would like to have hung out with, but uh, a lot probably were. You know, what kind of person does it take to leave their entire life behind them with, uh, with no guarantee that they'll ever be able to go back and not knowing at all what the future holds? That's an interesting subset of people. And the Bay Area for uh, 150 years remained that, that way, even though so much constantly changed, often quite quickly. That ended, um, uh, you know, sometime over, you know, like from the 90s through the last few years, uh, it just, with speculation, people speculating over housing and other things, the prices there got dramatically too high for anyone without a plan and a really high paying job already lined up to move there. So all the people who were doing things who had rent control could stay, but over time, people like me and all the other people will eventually go away because less and less is happening. Berlin, however, since before World War One, was also it, 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 uh, that way it, in its own unique way. But yeah, a place where weirdos of the world could move to and uh, reinvent themselves and have plenty of time to do art and projects of all sorts. And um, yeah, and it's of course been through lots of ups and downs. There's been a couple of world wars and a dreadful depression that had a serious effect here, but Berlin always seems to recover. So yeah, uh, here I am, and uh, you know, there's 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 19 people, including myself, from the beginning of Noisebridge, the hackerspace I started in San Francisco in 2007, who moved from San Francisco to Berlin, and that's just people from Noisebridge. And I'm not really close friends with all of them, but I'm close friends with some. And then there's all these people who I've met at Chaos uh, Computer Club's annual event, the Chaos Communications Congress, which was happening here when I came here the first time in 2006 and I met lots of people who are now good friends. And of course the network kind of expands. And so I know a lot of really good people here, people doing art and music and electronics and all sorts of uh, social and political activism and people who are thinking. And it's wonderful to get together with one or several or a huge group of people and, and hang out and exchange ideas and, inspire each other and who knows what's next after one of these get togethers yeah i have been watching uh th this is kind of random this the show called berlin babylon um it's a netflix show well it's it's kind of like a whodunit um investigator show but they they show a lot of weimar republic kind of like before things got weird and there was a subset of people that were very aggressive and wanted to move in a certain direction and but the, but some of the stuff they show, you're, you're like, oh, that was legal. Like, oh, you could do that. Like, you know, like, um, um, well, one, one um, controversial issue was, was sort of brothels. Women were allowed to work in that capacity. It wasn't seen. They weren't really looked down upon. They had some security and safety. And it was a way for them to, to express themselves. Or there were a lot of people that were like cross-dressing, right? They were just sort of. But not, I don't know that it necessarily had the same connotation, but they just wanted to, to express themselves that way. And so the Weimar Republic, um, just speaking to what you're saying, because people usually think about maybe Germany is World War II happened and it was the worst place and now we're here. Um, yeah, before that, it was very um, interesting and cultural and artistic and, and stuff. Um, but that's 10% of the show, but it's just kind of... Um, if, if you like uh, investigator shows, it's something to, to check out. But I wonder, kind of, you keep saying without a plan. Um, uh, so in a general sense, and I've, I've done this. I mean, I moved uh, actually to San Francisco because of Noisebridge. I was, uh, I was living, uh, I grew up in the Bay Area. I was living in Burlingame, and I was like, holed up in my uh, apartment as usual, introvert. And um, 
I found out about this noise bridge thing. I said, wow, that's a cool community. I don't know what I'm going to do there. I'll just move close to it. Um, I didn't have a, I didn't really have a plan, but I ended up meeting a lot of cool people and that was what was fun. So do you think, it seems like most, I'm just leading into this because I, I think this is an important point is that most people do have a plan. They have kids, they have this, they have that, they have a mortgage, they have payments, they're stuck in a, a situation economically and stuff. And they, they have to plan each week and each month. They don't have a chance to just stop and think, what do I want to do? So I guess like, what does that mean? Not having a plan. And was there a period in your life where you're just like, you had downtime and you're like, what am I going to, what am I going to do? You know, how, how did that manifest for you? Yeah, that's happened to me a few times in my life. And those have been the best times of my life um, where what I had been doing has come to its own end for whatever, uh, uh, you know, whatever path that was. And, and, um, and there I was with, with no plan. And for me, that's a good thing. That's a really good thing. Some people feel really uncomfortable with that. But for me, that's really wonderful because it's up to me and just me what I choose to do. And uh, sometimes it's a kind of scary because um, things are uncertain. You have no idea how things will work out, how you'll have enough money to buy food and shelter and all that stuff. Um, yeah, but it's exciting and I can choose whatever I want. And so it gives me time to explore, well, what is it that I want? You know, as, as a kid, we, we all have a point in our lives uh, where we have no plans as, as an infant, we don't even know the difference between ourselves and mom and the rest of the world. Uh, there's definitely no plans in that state. And uh, for many, many years, everything that we need, if, unless we're really unlucky, like a bunch of people on our planet, but for uh, me and I think you and most people I know as a little kid, we got whatever we needed in order to stay alive. And that was just provided. We didn't have to plan for that. And um, that's a pretty amazing state to be in. But as we grow older, we take on responsibilities. And in the US, uh, and you know, I grew up in a lower middle class kind of environment. And the expectation was that I would go to school and I would do good in school. And I would then go into a university and do well there and then choose some career path and get married and have kids and then buy a, a recreational vehicle and then die in Florida. Uh, I chose not to have take that path. Um, that was definitely not the path for me. And my parents, uh, I'm lucky, were supportive of me. They were disappointed a lot because they couldn't understand how I could possibly be happy doing the things I was doing. But they wanted me to be happy, even if they couldn't understand it. And they were supportive that way. And they were terrible parents in some respects, but they were really good in that respect and some others. So they were, they were supportive of me after... Um, um, going to school and then grad school and not knowing what to do and knowing I didn't want to have a job, um, but not having a plan. And I finally realized that um, being in grad school was very um, stressful for me. Um, I was doing lots of drugs uh, in order to escape my pain. And uh, I learned a lot from those drugs as well, which was on the forefront of my mind. That's my conscious reason for doing it, but I was definitely using it to escape my pain very well now. And um, I had to quit doing that if I wanted to live and I knew I wanted to live. And somehow I knew that I could live a life dealing with my depression, which I'd had all my life getting beaten up every day by bullies, uh, often while the gym teacher watched and other teachers thus encouraging them and I blamed myself and my parents didn't know what to do they were depressed as well and they didn't couldn't deal with their pain they certainly didn't want to deal with mine and it was, anyways blame myself as a little kid what else could I you know that's that's all I knew to do and so I learned uh, eventually to, to deal with depression but when I was in grad school I was running away from it and all the pain and doing the drugs with other people and learning from it but definitely a big part of it was to avoid the pain. And um, quitting grad school 
um, was an important choice. And uh, that was actually my second choice that I did for me. My first choice that I did for me was quitting my first addiction. And that was a serious one. And it still has a huge effect on me. And that was television. As a kid, I watched television every day, every moment of my waking life. And, um, and I quit that <clears throat> not all that long before I quit um, grad school. And then I quit the drugs that I was doing. And that was my third choice that I did for me. And making choices like these, I noticed had a powerful effect on me. You know, and again, I'm really lucky, um, even though I'm gay and totally depressed, uh, I'm white, I'm male, I grew up um, lower middle class, but still middle class. Um, uh, that's sort of the, the power elite of the country. And so I was able to get the support I needed uh, in navigating all of that. And there was no guarantee that I would have been able to succeed with any of it either, because I was uh, feeling uh, suicidal a lot as well. But I managed to survive that and making these choices enabled me to proceed and making those choices showed me that there's really powerful consequences for these kind of choices and for pretty much all choices we make. If we make them thinking that it's the best thing we can do, it, it, it's really powerful. And um, it took me many, many, many years from there to be able to learn to live with depression and learn to live a life I love. But, um, but that, was, that was kind of the, the really beginning of my life. Uh, but what, what brought me into all that is um, after quitting grad school and the drugs, I didn't know what I was gonna do next. I had no clue what I was gonna do next. There were a bunch of things that I knew that I enjoyed that were meaningful to me. Um, and in grad school, there were a bunch of things that I really loved, even though there were a bunch of things that I really didn't love and, uh, and took too much out of me. Um, <clears throat> and for me, grad school just wasn't appropriate to continue. So um, the thing that I ended up choosing to do was um, teaching, because that's the part of grad school that I love the most. But what I saw is that I was in a state similar to when I was a little kid, not getting beaten up by bullies. Um, I wasn't in school. I could choose whatever I wanted. And that was really exciting because the future is just wide open at that point. And um, of course there are limitations based on me and my experiences and the amount of money that I had or didn't have most likely because I was just a student, but um, yeah, that was really exciting. And I chose to teach, which was super good choice for me. And I did that for four years. Um, but after a while, I, was, I, I noticed I was teaching partly for the wrong reasons, um, partly for the right reasons as well, just like the drugs, except it was uh, less uh, negative consequences. And the right reasons were more powerful and bigger percentage than the wrong reasons. But I still <clears throat> was really depressed and I hated myself. And I've always had that as big part of myself, hating myself. But I was looking externally for a way to justify my existence, to prove that I'm an okay person worth, worth living, you know, that deserved to live. And that never works. If you use something external to justify yourself, there will never be enough. And so I uh, unconsciously required that I was the perfect teacher for all my hundreds of students. And that took so much out of me. And eventually I, I got pretty close to total burnout uh, and had to quit teaching. Um, and uh, um, <laughs> Interestingly enough, I, I was an incredibly good teacher according to all of the students who rated me. There were only two, two students that um, didn't rate me the highest possible. And those were people, two people hated me. <laughs> they just hated me. Uh, and I can laugh at that now, but at the time, having just two people out of hundreds that didn't rate me well was devastating. And, um, uh, 
you know, like when I teach, I don't, it was electronics and math and physics and science. And I don't, I don't do anything in a vacuum, uh, you know, electronics, physics, science, all this stuff is just part of life. And so I'm always adding a, a sort of fun and philosophy and whatever, and treating people as humans, however old they are in the classes. And um, yeah, so these two students didn't like that. Um, so, but the others loved it. And, and then I got to a place where I quit and I didn't know what was next. And I realized yet again, I was in a place where I had no plans for the rest of my life. And it was really exciting again, because I could choose whatever I wanted. And um, yeah, and ever since then, I've, I've always wanted to get to a place where my responsibilities, you know, I do whatever I need to, to fulfill my responsibilities, to get to a place yet again, where I don't have plans for the rest of my life. I can choose whatever I want and whatever is best for me and the people around me. And um, I'm in that place again. And moving to Berlin was coming from that place because I could, there wasn't much left for me in San Francisco. It was still, I, I had a rent controlled apartment so I could have stayed, but my building owner, the landlords offered me $100,000 to leave. And, in San Francisco, that would have been not enough because that's a month and a half of, I'm sorry, a year and a half only of rent, <laughs> absurdly. But in Berlin, it goes a long way. So I moved here and um, without a plan, but with $100,000. So that made it a lot easier to come here with no stress whatsoever. And um, um, yeah, and with friends and all of that. So, and I realized just a couple of weeks ago that what I really want to do next is write because I have a few books in, inside of me. And, yeah. Um, yeah, well, that's what I'll be doing after I get my visa that allows me to stay here. Yeah, well, I think uh, we've been, uh, you know, friends, I suppose, off and on here for a while. And part of what I like is that you kind of wear your heart on your sleeve or that you're just honest about who you are. Like, uh, I just mentioned a lot of the things you said are very vulnerable, right? Like suicide depression i basically have a phd in depression you know just dealing with it and uh uh it's not it's not fun i wouldn't wish it on anyone sometimes i wish i had the straightforward path i actually admire people that go through school and they like the job that they're working and they're able to they, they do they do feel happy but with depression there is that like sort of meditative introspective part of you that's like what am i doing and i did live that that part of my life where I was seeking an external, something external to validate. Give me the stamp, give me the award, give me the this, the that. Um, and of course I'm surrounded uh, in the Bay Area, you're surrounded by uh, very smart, intellectual, success, often successful people. And I know people that come from small towns and they live there and it's like, man, if you manage three pizza huts, which is no offense, like that's a, that's a real success and it is. And it's like, in the Bay Area, it's something different, you know, and especially in academia. Um, so, yeah, looking for that ex external acknowledgement can really, really suck you in. And and um, it is, like you said, it's something you have to find inside, like align what you feel about yourself or at least what you think who you are. Because a lot of life is spending time alone, you know, and accepting yourself. So. Anyway, I just wanted to appreciate that. Uh, I wanted to to thank you for being so so honest. It's one of the things we've had good conversations in the past. Um, and I also wanted to echo the TV thing. I grew up in that, uh, just to say, I grew up in a similar, maybe a, some pseudo similar situation. Both my parents had jobs because it's expensive in the Bay Area. And, and so they would come home around five or seven and I would walk home from school and turn the TV on. Um, and then it turned into the, I'm a little younger, it turned into the computer and turned the computer on. And I had to learn how to, uh, differentiate, you know, I like the fact that we can have snackable content. Now I can watch a five minute thing or education. I can pick something. I don't have to sit there at the TV and be at the whim of it, which is really, uh, really, really hard, but yeah. And, and I'll, I'll just say I, it, I, I didn't really get bullied in school. 
I bullied myself. I went through that period where I was bullying myself. You're thinking, oh, well, you're not good enough. You're not this. You're not that. Da, 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 da. But it does if you can get through it. And I and I hope people listening that maybe that had depression, if you can get through it. And it is really kind of meditative being with your thoughts and thinking, what do I want? Who am I? Um, you might be able to come out the other side, at least feeling, you know, good about who you are, I think, you know, and so that that's what I would wish. And so I think it was a really powerful message you had sort of getting rid of the stigma because I don't even talk about my, my stuff. Um, so yeah. So, so I know one of the big things for you was teaching soldering, right? Like teaching. So I went to one of your classes and it's not my thing. It's just not, I'm not a very builder person, but I did learn how to solder. Uh, I, you know, you take a heating element, you take a certain type of metal, uh, lead or whatever, and you heat it up and you put it and you can make circuits. And so I thought that was really cool. And, and so what do you think like the part, part of the identity of, of making something or creating something or having ownership being like, Oh, I made that. Oh, you open something up, you open a remote or you open something. How important do you think that is for somebody to actually um, be a part of what they use versus kind of like always being in this, you know, I have a mouse here. I, I understand now kind of how my mouse works and the circuits and everything, right? Like it just, um, so the long form of that is how important do you think it's for people to get, like, get involved and get excited or at least understand what's underneath, you know, demystify it, even just for like a 10 year old kid or something. Uh, do you think that gives confidence to say, well, I'm not owned by these things around me? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, like uh, that, that keys into so many different things. So um, like, like, um, you know, what you were mentioning before uh, and, and what I've been skirting around as well, um, addiction is what happens when you try to validate yourself externally. And uh, some people have more addictive personalities than others, but it's we're all prone to addiction. And um, like screens, TV, uh, when, when it was invented, wasn't invented as an addictive device, but it became very clearly that people were becoming addicted to it. And when it became clear that that was possible, then the TV industry went whole bore into it and did a lot of studies to try to make it as addictive as possible. And they succeeded. It's an extremely addictive thing. They, um, you watch uh, whatever's happening on the screen and whatever's going on inside of you seems to disappear for a little while. And then the show ends and then there it all is inside of you screaming to come out. And, uh, but then the next show comes on and then you can push it away again for another half hour, hour and a half or two hours, whatever. Um, and this is true for consuming as well. Uh, the message that we receive in the media in our lives is, is your life sucks. That's basically, they don't come right out and say it, but they're showing you that by, by giving you people to compare yourself to. Um, who are beautiful and smiling and happy with, with supportive friends and family and loving and all this. And, you know, you, you know, just think of yourself for a moment. You're not that. And you, you can't help but compare yourself to that. And they're showing you this over and over and over again. And the reason why your life sucks is because you don't have this, whatever this is. And, um, you know, it's kind of a simplistic um, uh, representation that I just gave, but that's basically it. And we're driven to get more and more and more and more. And, you know, it doesn't change things. And I, wanna, I wanted to mention have... just one, one thing that I think about, because I think about things and kind of like, like systematically. So, and people talk about, oh, well, you know, what's the future going to be like? Is, are people going to own stuff? But basically they have to keep you happy enough, but just a little bit less that there's a void right? Because that's how consumerism works. And so when you buy the thing, you get that temporary fix, but you always kind of feel, and, and this is just general, in American economy, at least, you know, there has to be a little bit of a void and then you buy something and it gets fixed. So, so yes, the, the, the companies and everybody that's selling things, they want you to be happy, but there's a void. And there's also this other trick where they want to give people just enough money that they can survive, 
but not enough that they can quit a job they don't like. And that becomes a huge, huge, scary thing. Right. And so happiness plays out in this sort of like basically quantitative way. And so I wanted to echo that for anyone that's wondering, like it's it's planned. It's basically planned that you feel good, but you feel kind of, well, I don't have that. I don't have that. And you keep ticking up. Right. Um, and so anyways, kind of what you're saying. Yeah, it's it is it is it is sort of it is sort of a, a treadmill because you have to be a little bit unhappy to think, well, I need that next thing. Um, of course, I do like nice things. I mean, um, cool. but like my best purchase is my cat, really. It was like one hundred ten dollars. And, uh, you know, I just feed it and stuff like that. Right. So um, anyways, I wanted to express express that thought because it's very sad that people don't realize that that's how it's pro- you're you're programmed. Right. Like, oh, I don't feel very tough. I better get a big truck. I see these huge trucks. Right. So, um, yeah. Uh, yeah, they did succeed. So, it, um, but I'm guessing you got addicted to positive things or something. You tried to reshape your addiction into something that you had control over. Is that kind of. Well, you know, know. Addiction, you know, what is addiction? You know, uh, and, you know, for me, the, the only useful um, and this is my own thing, too. The useful definition of addiction is engaging in behaviors that get in the way of a life you would rather live. And if you're like, I'm, you know, one could say I'm addicted to breathing, you know, I, I breathe almost every moment of my life. And, uh, and I would be really unhappy if I if I was deprived of it. Right. So, um, but you know, like, uh, so for me, it, it's, it's engaging in behaviors that get in the way of a life I would rather live. Um, like I could, out of, out of all of the things that I could choose to do right now, I'm choosing to talk to you. And that's a conscious choice. There are other things I could be doing, but that's what I'm choosing to do. And that's what I think is the best thing to do. We plan to do this and I wanted to follow through. And I was way curious to see what we would talk about, how it would go, all this stuff. So it's, it's a great choice as I'm seeing it. Um, but um, back when I was watching TV, I wasn't making conscious choices. There was just a show on and I would forget about some of my pain and then the show would be over and then they would don't touch that dial coming up next is you know and i would just watch the next show and the next show and the next show and eventually i'd be exhausted i'd go to sleep i'd wake up i'd get beaten up by bullies and um i'd in school and i'd come home and i'd try to watch tv to forget about it again and i became fat and i became uh more unhealthy I should say I became fatter and more unhealthy and more depressed and more of a target at school and only wanted to avoid my pain even more when I got home. And this is the cycle of addiction. And with consumerism, it's it's similar. And with um, being addicted to money as well, um, you you have a bigger number on a screen is always better when regarding money. And, uh, And no matter how much you have, you were trained to be insecure with that because it might not be enough. Enough for what? I don't know, but it might not be enough, you know? And so groping for security is also addictive and engaging in all of this kind of behavior means you have way less energy to do something that's perhaps a little bit more enjoyable out of all the infinite things that you, whoever you are, could be doing right now well, if you're listening to me, you're choosing to listen to me. Maybe not consciously, it's just sort of happened. You can choose to, to turn me off, you know? Fuck this guy, <laughs> I'm out of here. You know, you can do that if you want to, or you can continue to listen to see what happens. It's up to you. But out of all the things you could choose to do, what do you want to do? Little things, big things? You could go get some fries, you know? You could go, um, 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 uh, paint your eyes a different color, whatever. You can do anything. Um, what do you want to do? It's, it, I think it's worth considering. And little things and big things. It's not that we have to live in our head all the time. Part of the decision is how you feel about it. Um, you know, where's your heart at, uh, metaphorically speaking? Um, and it's not about choosing out of the column of positives and negatives. That never works. We can't, in order for that to work, we have to predict the future and people have proven to be terrible at predicting the future. So, um, but how you feel um, is really important and what we choose to do changes how we feel. And we also learn a lot given the consequences of whatever we, from whatever we choose to do. 
And we can learn from those consequences if we choose to. We can choose to learn from our, the consequences of our choices. And, um, and then hopefully over time, we get better at it. You know, you put your 10,000 hours into that process and you get better at that process. You're a master at it. Uh, on the other hand, you put 10,000 hours into avoiding your pain by watching TV or working too much or groping for money or groping for security or downloading porn on the internet or eating chocolate or whatever. We can use anything addictively. You put 10,000 hours into that addiction and you're a master at your addiction. You know, you said you were a master at, at being depressed, you know, like, so, so am I. I put my 10,000 hours in. Um, both of us did. Um, but we could have maybe chosen earlier other things that could have taken us on other paths and who knows what our lives would have been. But the thing is we chose the paths we had and here we are right now, we can make choices right now for what we wanna do. Right. And why not make choices for what you think is cool, you know, to support yourself and those around you to make your life better, the life of those around so, you better. What do you think is cool? <laughs> I mean, now that we're getting there, you've made these choices. Uh, and we were talking a little bit about making things or, or writing books. We could talk about, let's talk about the now, because I think that's, that's what's exciting you. Um, yeah. Well, what do you want to, I mean, you can, into, go ahead. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, but I'm just, you know, I'm just yeah, well, going with the flow. There's a delay, there's a delay in, 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 so it's easy to step on top of each other without trying. So sorry about that. Um, yeah, well, you were asking before about making stuff. So, you know, that, that's the thing. Like, if you make your own things, it doesn't mean that you're free of a consumerist society, but, but it does show you that you have more power than you might have thought you had. And um, for me, um, teaching people how to make things and, you know, just soldering is not a big deal. I, I think it's fun. And so engaging people together in a small or a large group doing something that we think we might like is a very positive thing in and of itself. It doesn't even matter what it is. Um, in my case, I like teaching soldering. It's something I, I'm good at. It's something I'm good at teaching at. It's something I love doing and teaching it to others is also something I love doing. Um, and what people make is just usually not something world changing or um, that changes their lives, but it, it does, Change, the doing that changes their lives because as you mentioned, it gives people confidence to know that they can do something that maybe they thought was for only other people. And even if they never solder again in their life, they still have that confidence inside themselves. And they have that sense of accomplishment that they made this thing that they think is cool. And in my workshops, I have an array of different kits that I created. Um, so that at least one for almost everyone, uh, a person will think at least one of them is cool enough to try to make. And then I make it really easy for them to make it. <clears throat> and along the way, they learn not only how to solder, but a little bit about how these electronic projects work. And they may have thought that electronics is difficult and complicated, and I'll never learn that. But afterwards, they have this thing that they made themselves, and they know how it works. And that is a lot of confidence and a good sense of accomplishment. But even given all of that, the biggest thing for me about teaching soldering is that it's just an excuse for people to come together and get a sense of community. Because what we really need in our lives and it's seriously lacking in our modern world is a sense of community. And we really do need that to live lives that we feel are meaningful. Uh, almost everyone, even hermits, need other people sometimes. Um, <clears throat> and um, we, we, as people on the planet, we evolved to support each other as social creatures. That's how we survived on the planet at a time when we didn't have all that many tools. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, and, but we had each other. We had our clan, our, our tribe, whatever we could support each other and survive and therefore we did and the sense of community the need for the sense of community survived with us even though it seems we don't need it just to survive anymore i think now though it's becoming a time yet again where we know that we need each other to survive because the climate is changing on our planet 
And what are we going to do with 8 billion humans on the planet with, that's a lot of needs, energy needs and food and water and air and all the things we need to stay alive. We can't do that on our own. We can't, no matter what. And the, the way to make money, which is how we uh, sort of a, uh, one of the resources we need to live in our modern world, is changing really quickly as well. Jobs are going away, never, never to return again. And so we, we need to support each other and come up with ideas and experiment in order for each of us to survive and for our communities to survive and for humanity as a whole to survive and hopefully to convince the planet that it, it's worthwhile to continue to support not only humans but other mammals and other life forms because we're, right now the, the planet seems changing its idea of whether it's worth um, to anthropomorphize things uh, to, to keep supporting us yeah um, and given that uh, we're people like I'm a people I kind of like people they're one of my favorite species I would like the planet to continue to support us you you got it I love the way you're saying that I'm sorry uh, yeah I, I know I'm stepping on you a little bit when yeah, people fine. say that the earth is failing and I said no it's doing exactly what it's supposed to do it's adjusting the earth will be here. It's just, just a question of what we, what we want to output and what it's going to adjust to. And if we continue down a certain path, it's going to be, you know, not just warmer. It could be colder in some places, but warmer, but also natural disasters and, and many, many things that will make it hard for humans to live. But that's what the earth does. It cleanses. It, it's, it's a perfect sort of system in, in the sense that the planet kind of balances out. You know what I mean? So I say like, it's us, how we want to communicate to earth and what it's going to give back uh, in a very general sense. How much, it's very amazing. You put out CO2, the earth says, you know, whoa, you know, it, it, has, it, it has a measurement factor of you're doing too much, right? And, uh, and only sometimes I, I, I saw some crows the other day and I know they're very uh, smart. They say they, they're, they're probably smarter than I am because they only take as much as they need and they have a community and they work together and, uh, you know, they don't have a, a, a money, you know, and I, but I think, you know, one of the, and obviously, yes, we need to come together. We need to solve things. And thankfully there are some smart people that are coming up with solutions that if we get behind, I think we can do a lot. I think we can do a lot, but I think, you know, one of the conversations we had and kind of building community is the difference between being a leader and a dictator or influential and controlling you know, and, and, and I, I'm still part of communities and, and I don't see myself as that important. I see, I see myself as a contributor, you know, and, um, uh, and that, that's, that's, what's hard. Like what builds a, a good community where we're contributing or we're being a part of it, we're listening rather than we're, we're putting in these sort of, we're basically recreating what's already not working. Right. So, you know, in terms of that, how, to, how, how do you see your role as being kind of a leader or maybe a more silent partner, somebody who's pushing things forward rather than sort of trying to dictate which direction things are going? You know, I think that's what kills a community really is, is that like, you know, small group of people making all the decisions when they, we should just sort of try to have this, this thing, right? Noise bridge was a good, a good experiment. Yeah. And it, uh, it worked incredibly well for 11 and a half years. Uh, and what made it work so well is that it was a whole bunch of people contributing to make it work and caring enough, um, each person caring enough that each person, uh, every person, <laughs> um, if they had objections that they were met and uh, everyone caring enough that it would be and um, yeah, so everybody who was part of the community, um, who they were, whether they're homeless or whatever color or race or, or uh, sexuality or whatever, it just didn't matter as long as people benefited from the community, contributed to the community and followed the one rule, which was be excellent to each other 
then they were a member of the community and could stay a member of the community as long as they continued to do all of that. And um, where uh, things went awry is when a small group of people wanted it their way and didn't care what other people thought or felt and became aggressive and people drifted away and there wasn't much community left after that. And that was like three years ago. And um, maybe it's coming together again because they were forced to move. And um, with the move, there was a lot of work and the only people putting the work in are uh, people, so I'm told, who care enough about the community. And it's sort of like an unintentional reboot, which is what we did to fix the big social problems that we had in uh, 2011, 2012, um, where things were... Um, getting kind of out of control and that's yeah a long story I, I, I was around I was around kind of after you I'm not sure after you left but after you kind of weren't around it was interesting to see things sort of reorient and people are starting to be excellent again um but it just it's just different but I think communities go up and down but <clears throat> I guess if you see models that aren't government could be considered a community in some sense you see models that aren't working we have a top-down leadership really what you want is a horizontal thing where people feel valued. And I think that's um, what we're, we're going for. But uh, I, I, wanted to, I wanted to tie it together and so talk about the now, because the now is exciting um, and go, go there. What, yeah. what do you want? Do you know what you want to write about? Or you just go, you, you don't have a plan. You think I'm going to write. I mean, because it's yeah, really hard. Four books in me. Right, right, right. And it's hard to write. That's. I'll just say that. I don't know if anyone's ever sat down in a blank document and said, "I'm going to structure this and that." You really need a lot of time not traveling. Let's just say that. So, what what are you excited to write about as a teacher? I guess is, it seems to be the theme. Yeah. Well, um, there are people like. Uh, Cory Doctorow is um, someone I became friends with uh, when we were going to uh, the UK Maker Fair together every year. Um, and he, he amazes me because he can write while he travels, but I know I can't. And I'll, I'll just uh, reinforce what you said, like writing is hard for me anyways. Uh, it's really, 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 really slow process for me. I'm good at it when I give myself the time um, but I need a lot of time to do it. And, uh, and I love doing that. I love writing. And I've written lots of articles and I've written half of a book, but I never finished it. And I, that's the first project that I want to, to, to write. I want to finish that book. And that's uh, a book for people who know nothing uh, about how to do cool things with electronics. And uh, that might even be the title of the book. Um, how to, how to make cool things electronics for people who know nothing. So it's kind of long though, so I don't know. Anyways, it's sort of half written. I've got to restructure it now because when I wrote the first half with, uh, with help, a lot of help from my friend, Jeff Kaiser, um, um, things were kind of different than Arduino was just becoming a thing. And now Arduino is almost becoming uh, an old thing and other things are taking its place. So uh, I want to restructure it so that it's uh, for the current state of um, all the cool things you can do with electronics. And um, uh, yeah, and I, I do have time now and, and travel isn't really a thing now as long as the pandemic is here. And even after the pandemic, I'm not going to travel the way I used to, even though I love travel. Uh, and will travel some because uh, there there are still way worthwhile thing way worthwhile things to do that travel enables. But I'll be doing a lot less of it, and that gives me more time to write as well. So after I write that book, then I want to write another book, nonfiction uh, that's a more advanced thing for how to make sound and music with computer chips, microcontrollers. And that's uh, pretty much all structured in my head. So that one should be easier to write. And then the third book is another nonfiction book about community. And I've, all my life, I've been um, working with community, helping people form community, uh, forming communities uh, for myself to be a part of. And uh, a lot of it's um, 
worked terribly, <laughs> really miserably terribly. And a lot of it's worked well. And I learned a lot from all of that. And writing a book about community is something I'd like to do. And that one's going to be much more difficult to write because that one's not structured in my, in my mind yet. But um, after that, I want to write a novel going over the same topics of community. Because uh, uh, having it be fiction means that I can explore things in ways that are more difficult to explore in nonfiction. And um, there, those will be uh, really worthwhile and entertaining ways to learn about um, the importance of community in our human lives. So yeah. those are my first four books. And along the way, I'll probably come up with more ideas, but uh, assuming I live long enough, who knows? Hopefully. Uh, it's, it's sad because you're one of the people I want to have around. Uh, even if I don't, I don't know what you're doing. I'm like, he's doing something good. Right. So we got it. We got to keep those people around. Um, so I really appreciate your time. I want to, um, you know, honor your time here and, uh, thank you so much for sharing. And there's no plug, I guess, except for Mish does make something called TV be gone. Uh, he hated TV so much. He made a universal remote to turn off TVs. So I guess the message there is if you're, if you're watching a lot of TV, consider taking a break for a month and see how you feel. I always, I always tell people that, you know, uh, it's an addiction and you, you, you could use this remote to turn off TVs while you're trying to have a conversation at a restaurant, which is really annoying. And, uh, also if you think you may have an addiction that's getting in the way, the overall overarching theme I'm learning uh, in this. I say, if you can, try to take a break. See how you feel. Maybe it is helping you. Maybe you really do get a lot out of TV and then you apply to something. Um, but uh, that's, that's what I had to do. I took a number of breaks uh, in my life and then I had to re-add re things, you know, when I started adding things. And um, yeah, so... It's really good to hear someone excited and, and optimistic and, you know, um, I, I've, it's, it's been interesting quarantining, but I've been working from home for a long time and uh, I almost feel like it's uncool now. So I'll just say that. And it seems like everyone's working from home. So I feel like maybe I should go to the office. So I want to be cool, you know, I'd be contrary, but uh, it sounds like you're able to do a lot from home and uh, um so I'm, ha I'm happy to hear that. And thank you so much for your time. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks for the conversation. Uh, <laughs> glad we could do this. Cool. Thanks for listening and find more episodes at whatorigin.com.